A few weeks ago, Sarah and I took a trip to the Northeast to visit my family. And on the way back, there was a plane trip with someone who just didn't know enough or didn't see me clearly enough to, uh, to keep his mouth shut. And so he asked, what do I do? Um, and I told him I was pursuing ordination. I told him I was going to go into the ministry. And there was a moment that passed between us where he realized, oh, no. <laughs> I just opened this can of worms, and this is a four-hour flight. <laughs> and I have to admit that I felt somewhat of the same thing. There was a, a feeling of, do I... Am I really confident to pursue this conversation, the questions that he has? And he wasn't shy about his concerns. And there was a moment that, that I started to realize my, my cowardice almost in the way that I was, I was approaching him because in the back of my mind, the thoughts that were going through were, how do I make the cross, how do I make the gospel seem more palatable to this person? How do I make sure that he doesn't walk off of this plane thinking I'm a raving lunatic? How do I make the gospel seem to make sense to him? And yet I wanted to do it without making him mad at me. (laughs) But there was an issue with the way I was thinking. Here's the issue. The cross is ridiculous. The cross is foolishness to this world cross doesn't make sense until the Spirit opens our eyes. How do I reach others? It was even, how do I reach myself? Because I, we, need the foolishness of the cross. Every time we feel that God couldn't love us because of what we've done, because of the ways that we've sinned, every time we feel the need even though we know intellectually that it's not there, the need to somehow purify ourselves, to cleanse ourselves before we come back into his presence. Every time that we sin and then we wait to come into his presence because we feel like I'm just, I'm just too dirty, too unclean to be in his presence. We need the foolishness of the cross. Turn with me in your Bible or in your bulletin to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. Here the Apostle Paul is responding in this letter to really an overwhelming list of concerns of problems in the church at Corinth, to a set of concerns that really dwarfs any church tension that we've ever seen, things that if they came up would be scandalous, not only to us, but to anyone who could hear it. And yet, before he attacks these things, before he gets practical, as we would say, he actually takes a moment to address, who are you? Before I'm going to address what you do, I'm going to address who you are. And his words to the Corinthians carry weight to us today. What Paul tells us about who we are is either going to offend us or it's going to comfort us, depending on where our heart is, depending on who we see ourselves as. The question is, what, what is our history? What is our future? What are our goals? What are the things we dream about at night? Those things will determine, do we take these words with comfort, or do we take them with offense? So today, we're going to ask three questions. What is wisdom? 
Am I wise? And whose wisdom do I boast? I've appreciated what David has done the last few weeks with with giving an outline for the kids. If, If you're not going to be able to listen through this whole sermon with rapt attention, or the not kids who won't be able to do so, I want you to listen for two things. I want you to listen to a, for a story about middle school, and I want you to listen for a story about an unlikely battle. So, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, so God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might, bro- might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as the word of the Lord, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our first question, what is Wisdom. It isn't a category that we use all that often. When I was growing up in school, there wasn't a class on wisdom. Although the prophet, or uh, although the proverbist, if that's a word, he says, fathers, teach your sons wisdom. But wisdom is a category that we can have a hard time defining, that we can have some maybe unhelpful associations with. Because it's more than intelligence, more than just being well-educated. You can know a lot of things and still not be wise. Likewise, it's more than just goodness. It's not just being a nice person. It's not just doing the right thing, although that's involved, as intelligence is. It's not just intuition or brilliance, seeing things clearly that other people don't see. Wisdom is kind of this encompassing term It wraps these things together. It's not just intellectual. It's not just ethical. It's not just intuitive. It's been given various definitions. I'm not going to give a be-all, end-all definition today, but here's a good functional way to look at wisdom. 
Wisdom is simply thinking and acting in a way that corresponds to the way things really are. It's pretty simple, right? It's less mystical than we can tend to make it. Wisdom is just thinking and acting in a way that corresponds to the way things really are. Often it seems like for something to be deemed wise, if you read a fortune cookie and you can understand it, you're going to say, that's not that deep. But if it's something that you can't understand and that you just sit there saying, the wise bird rings the bell twice, oh, that must be deep. I can't understand it. But no, wisdom, wisdom makes sense. If you read the Proverbs, the book of of wisdom, most of them are things that you read and you say, yeah, that, that sounds right. If your car is low on gas and you go to the gas station, you've acted wisely. If you see that little warning light and say, eh, I can probably make it, you might be acting unwisely. Not to say that any of us in this room have ever done that regularly. So it's helpful to keep this definition of wisdom in mind when we read that God destroys the wisdom of the wise, that he thwarts the discernment of the discerning. It's not a mystical statement. It's not magical. It's not mysterious. Those who are wise according, who are wise according to the ways of this world have built their wisdom upon the assumption that the God whom we worship did not create the world, that he did not send his son to live a perfect life and to die on a Roman cross, that Christ did not rise again on the third day and ascend to heaven to the right hand of the Father. Those things don't have a place in worldly wisdom. They don't make sense to worldly wisdom. And so when we read of God, we don't read that he has informed the wisdom of the wise. We don't read that he's corrected the wisdom of the wise. No. God has thwarted God is destroyed. That's military terminology. That's, that's a battle that has occurred between God's wisdom and the wisdom of this world. And God has struck the resounding victory. He has destroyed it. He has thwarted it. Again, it's, it's practical. We see this, that God has thwarted, destro- destroyed worldly wisdom. When we're in that conversation where we don't feel confident to engage the questions that people ask us. When we have somebody who has a way with words that makes us start to doubt, we remember God's wisdom has thwarted, has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. I may not be brilliant, but I can be wise because I am in God's wisdom. Now, there are plenty of reasons why people of the world might not receive God's wisdom. Paul uses two groups of people to illustrate this. He says that Jews demand signs. We may not do a lot of evangelism uh, with Jewish people, but we hear this kind of excuse all the time. If I would be able to see, or sorry, if I, yeah, if I would see evidence of God, then I would believe in him, right? Why doesn't God just show me a sign? Why doesn't he just do something miraculous, appear next to me, and then I would believe in him? On the other hand, Greeks He says, seek wisdom. Again, we hear this all the time. I can't believe in a God who, blank. I can't believe in a God who would sacrifice his own son. I can't believe in the God who would send people to hell. I can't believe in a God who doesn't accept my views on, well, X, Y, and Z, whatever the topic. 
But Paul tells us that since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I can't tell you how to make the cross seem less ridiculous. Because in fact, the gospel will always be foolishness to the world. All we can do to ourselves, to others, is to preach it in all of its foolishness, in all of its power. Our second question, am I wise? So we can understand what wisdom is, we can understand where wisdom comes from, and yet we can struggle, and probably do struggle, to really embrace it from day to day. I want to bring you back for a moment to middle school. For some of us, I want to bring you forward to middle school. There's a moment, maybe it's in middle school, maybe it's earlier, maybe it's later for you, where there was a sudden recognition that some people were cool. For me, this was a recognition that some people were cool and that I was not. There was a moment that I realized that the worth that I had always felt myself to have was no longer taken for granted. There was a moment where I realized that I had to earn it from people, that I had to decide who I was and act in a certain way so that people would accept me. There was a moment where I was riding the school bus home and I heard two classmates of mine talking about another classmate. They said, can you believe that Johnny, I forget what his name is, that he still plays with Legos, what a kid, what a, what a chump. Who still plays with Legos in sixth grade? And of course, we had all played with Legos in fifth grade, and, and something apparently changed over the summer. But I started feeling like, oh no, maybe I can't do that. Now, Legos were my favorite thing, right? I thought I was going to be an architect when I grew up and build things and construct things. And all of a sudden, I, I said, I need to be who these people want me to be. I need to fit in. I need to be whatever cool is. Now, I said middle school. But for many people in this room, there's barely been a moment in your life that this hasn't been part of the conversation going on in your head. Now, we get better at it, right? We know the things that we don't, want to do in front of other people, the things that we hide until we're at home, the things that we wouldn't tell people we actually enjoy, the things that we wouldn't admit to people that we do, and yet we're all middle schoolers. (laughs) It's a sad, sad thing for me to say because middle school wasn't a great time for me, but we're all middle schoolers at some level. We still feel the need to prove ourselves to demonstrate the qualities that we really want to believe that we have. Maybe first it was wearing the right clothes. It was getting the right grades. It was making the right team. Maybe now it's having the right job, having well-behaved children, having people think of you as intelligent, as impressive, as powerful, even having people think of you as kind. I mentioned earlier that what Paul has to say to us will either be comforting or will be offensive, depending on what we understand our identity to be. This is verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Now, these words weren't written in a vacuum. They were written to a specific group of people. They were written to the city of Corinth. And the city of Corinth wasn't some middle-of-nowhere village. The city of Corinth was one of the largest, one of the wealthiest, most prestigious cities in ancient Greece. It was a place for the powerful. It was a place for the wealthy. It was a place for people who were the best educated, the most influential, the people who were the most self-sufficient and self-assured, the people who had life put together. And so Paul is talking to his group of Christians, the ones who maybe were on the outskirts of this. And it feels like he's rubbing their noses in it. He says, not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were well-born. Now imagine this. Imagine those people in that room reading this and saying, my hope was just shattered. All of my life I have wanted to join that class of people, to be good enough. I've wanted to be wise in this culture that says wisdom is everything. I've wanted to be, well, to be wealthy. I've wanted to be influential. Is he rubbing his, their noses in it, or does he have something to tell them? Likely some of us in this room at some points in our lives have had someone tell us something much like this, or what's worse, to show us that we're not good enough, that we're less than, that we don't measure up. Likely some of us in this room have spent every day since then trying to prove them wrong, trying to prove that we can get that job, that we can overcome our family history, that we can be what we want ourselves to be. And Paul is simply telling them, this is what you are. Not many of you are well-born, not many wise. Is this offensive? If I'm honest, there are days that I don't want to believe Paul and what he's telling me. I don't want to believe him when he tells me I'm not as as intelligent as I think I am. I'm not as wealthy. I'm not as in control of my life as I want to either think that I am. Gospel here is either an offense or a comfort. If we're still fighting to be good enough to prove that person wrong who once made us feel small, to find that accomplishment that will finally convince ourselves of our own worth, we're still fighting grace. We're still fighting the foolishness of the cross, and the challenge that Paul offers us, and the privilege is to lay down our attempts to be good enough, to cling to the foolishness of the cross. There's a story in the Old Testament that that helps to show us what it means to lay down our wisdom, to lay down our attempts to be good enough. This is the story of Gideon. When Gideon was a judge over Israel, the Israels, they were in the promised land, and yet they were being oppressed. They had strayed from God's ways, and so God had sent a nation, the Midianites, to, to rule over them. 
And finally, in Gideon's day, this time was coming to an end. God was going to deliver his people. And so Gideon was called by the Lord to deliver the Israelites. He was called by the Lord to call an army together. And they called together 32,000 people. And Gideon said to himself, we can do this. I've gathered the tribes together. I've gathered our armies. We're working together. We're doing this. We can defeat them. And God said, it's too many. So he sent home everyone who was fearful, everyone who was trembling. And 22,000 people left. Only 10,000 remained. And the Lord said, it's too many. So they sent the people to go drink. They sent them down to a pond or a pool. And the Lord said, everyone who kneels down to drink will be sent home. Everyone who laps water like a dog does, they will stay. And 300 in the end remain. And God says, now we can go to battle. And so Gideon splits these, tri- these 300 people into three groups, and they surround the Midianites, and they, they don't even attack. They simply blow their trumpets, and they yell, for the Lord and for Gideon. And the Lord sent the Midianites into a frenzy, so that they started to attack one another. Now, the point of this battle was not merely that Israel would be delivered, but the point is that God would be, would be glorified. What he was saying was, if you attack and you win by your own might, you will say, I have done this. I have accomplished it. But if you win with these overwhelming, these ridiculous circumstances, you will know it's the Lord who has delivered you. And so our final question of the night is, in whose wisdom do I boast? This is where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. This is where I have to confess to God on a regular basis, Lord, I have preferred my glory to your glory. I have preferred often defeat on my own terms to victory on God's. I have preferred to hold on to my dreams even if they won't be accomplished than to lay my life at God's feet and to know his victory, to know true wisdom The question is, how do we grow in the desire to boast of God's wisdom rather than our own? This is something that we struggle with, right? The letter to the Corinthians was written to a, to a large, to an important people. I think it could easily have written, been written to Dallas, where a people who don't like to be told that we can't do something, that we don't have the strength for, that we can't lift ourselves by our own bootstraps, We don't like to be told that we're in a situation where we need to trust God more than we trust ourselves. That's not intuitive for us. So there are two things that I want to encourage us to practice as a way to grow in this. The first is to boast actively in the Lord's wisdom. To boast in what he's done for you and who he is as you pray at night Boast in your heart. The Lord cared about me enough to send his son for me. Not only that, he cared about me enough 
to raise him again, and he has cared about me every day since then to hear my prayers. I have an audience with the God of the universe. To boast in that. Like Gideon, to rather boast in God's victory than in our defeat, even though God's victory did not come the way we would have imagined. Even in those times of life that we have a hard time seeing victory, to remember, to boast that God has won the victory, that it is assured. The second thing, the hard one, is to rejoice in our weakness. Paul tells us that we are not as wise as we like to think. We're not as discerning as we like to think. We're definitely not as righteous as we like to think. But though the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's a fitting morning to look at this text as Stephen Miller. Because it's a moment to remember what they've done here. It's a moment to remember the wonderful years of, of service. I've only known them for a few weeks, but I already have been blessed by Melissa's piano playing by the two of them in this congregation, Lord. It's an it's a amazing blessing, and yet we know that as they leave, as Steve pursues a pastoral position, he doesn't leave boasting of what he has done here. Melissa doesn't boast of, of the amazing gifts that she gave us, wonderful as they are. But as we lose these two, we boast in what the Lord has done through them and what the Lord has done in them. It's a good moment to remember, to celebrate, not our goodness, but the amazing goodness of a God who saves us and then delights to use us for his glory.